this could actually be a major, major hindrance on the use of generative AI, especially for enterprises, because there's no way people that are big enough to have a legal team are going to allow this. And so I could see the pushback from the tech companies like, oh, whatever law just hasn't caught up. Well, but it's still the law. You don't get to change the law because you built really cool technology. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 39 of the Marketing AI Show and what may be the craziest episode we have had to record yet. I am your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Caput. So, Mike? How's it going, Paul? Good. You and I are both back in the office after our travels last week. I was speaking in San Diego and San Francisco, and you were in... Denver, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. Lots of AI talks these days. Lots of interest in, in presentations. So Mike and I have been hitting the road. So uh, a lot happened last week, and I'm going to get to that in a second. Uh, first, this episode is brought to you by the AI for Writers Summit. Uh, it is next week. You're listening to this. We are recording on Monday, March 20th. It, it, this will drop on March 21st. The Writer Summit is on March 30th. If you haven't heard about it yet, it is a half-day virtual summit that has more to talk about than I originally expected. <laughs> we, When we first came up with the idea to do this summit, it was in large part because of all the questions around the impact of generative AI on writing for writers, for content teams, for brands, media companies, publishers, agencies. We were getting asked all these questions and we just didn't really have answers for everyone. And so... The idea was let's pull together a virtual summit, virtual, so we can get as many people as possible to attend and like open up this conversation uh, free thanks to Writer, our presenting sponsor. So there's a free option to register. And I think we're approaching uh, like 28 or 2,900 registrants. So there's a lot of people that are trying to figure this space out. And as we're going to find out today in this episode, there's a lot more variables now than there was a week ago. <laughs> And so I'm, I'm really glad we're doing the event live. It's, um, I have not created my keynote yet. I, I know my event team freaks out every time I say that, but honestly, there's so many moving pieces. I just haven't been sure exactly how to say what needs to be said and what to cover. So anyway, uh, that event's coming up on March 30th. You can get registered at AIWritersSummit.com. Uh, it's going to be great. We're going to have, I'm going to do an opening keynote. Mike's going to do a talk on AI tools. May Habib from Writer is going to do talk on AI for content teams. We're going to have a panel on the future of AI. Um, and then we're going to have Anne Hanley from Ever Everybody Writes Author and just all around amazing marketer. Uh, she and I are going to do a fireside chat kind of on storytelling and, and writing and the impact of AI and where this could all go. And then we're going to have a moderated Q&A with some of the speakers. So Definitely check that out if you're interested in the generative AI space, specifically around language and, and writing. Um, okay. Oh, and also a quick note. Thank you to Writer, GoCharlie, Visla, HyperWrite, Rasa.io, DemandWell, Gloss AI, and Copymatic, who are the supporting sponsors for that event. So we really appreciate everybody's support in bringing that to the market. Okay, Mike, but I need to take a quick drink and get ready for this. Uh, 
lay it out for us. What are we covering today? All right. So we're going to cover some main topics and some rapid fire topics as usual, but I want to tee up what those are first, because we're going to kind of dive into connecting the dots here and how all of these crazy announcements we've heard this past week are kind of in aggregate changing many, many things about the industry. So we're obviously going to cover GPT-4. It's here. We've started using it. Google and Microsoft had some huge AI announcements about embedding AI in their core products. We had a, what we might call game-changing announcement from the U.S. Copyright Office about AI-generated content, and that we've got a range of announcements about Microsoft's responsible AI team, Anthropic, introducing Claude, um, a couple AI funding announcements, Gen 2 coming out from Runway, and last but certainly not least, version 5 of MidJourney. So there has been probably one of the biggest, if not biggest, news weeks in AI happening in the past seven days. But before we dive into GPT-4 and all the rest of it, why don't you kind of tee up what happened last week for us and kind of how you are thinking about these in aggregate. Yeah. So to set the stage, you know, we've talked, anybody's attended our intro to AI class or heard me speak, we talk about this exponential growth curve and how things are going to happen really fast and it's going to be hard to comprehend and keep up. And so last Tuesday was the perfect example of this. So I'm, I'm boarding a flight Tuesday morning, Eastern time. I think my flight was at 8.30. I was flying to Denver, transferring in Denver, and then going to San Diego to present at Social Media Marketing World on Wednesday. So as I'm sitting on the runway, uh, no pun intended here, runway puts out a video on Twitter announcing or teasing a major breakthrough in the next generation of storytelling was dropping on March 20th. So this is about 8, 8.30 a.m., 8.20 a.m. Eastern time. So I messaged that to Mike. I was like, hey, podcast topic for next week. It's probably text to video. It, it was, we'll get to that later. Um, then also before I, I think before I take off, uh, Meta announces they're laying off 10,000 more workers this year in the year of efficiency, as Zuckerberg put it. And embedded within there, if you read between the lines, is they think AI is going to do a bunch of the work that the people are doing. And so we're not going to need as many people is kind of the gist of it. So there's a lot more to it, but they definitely talk about the role of AI in efficiency. And so that was there. Then. Google announces Palm API. So Palm is their one of their language models that they're going to open up the APIs for developers to build on. So this would kind of compete with the GP, chat GPT or GPT-4. Um, so they're basically coming to market with their own language model to build on. And they're going to infuse these generative AI tools right into Google Workspace. So we'll talk about that in a minute. It's one of our big topics. The thing that was odd to me, though, is this is happening at like 9 a.m. So I think I'm now in the air. I have my Wi-Fi going, my $8 United Wi-Fi, which thank goodness worked on, on this trip. And so I immediately messaged the team. I'm like, okay, something else is dropping today. Maybe it's GPT-4 because why is Google making an announcement at 6 a.m. Pacific time about something that seems like a really big deal? It would appear to me they're trying to get out ahead of news later today. So that was like my initial takes. So now I'm in flight to Denver. Anthropic announces Claude or Claude, I don't know how you say it. Their language model is going to be available. <laughs> then Adept announces a $350 million Series B. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then I land in Denver and I'm walking through the airport. I have an hour to transfer and I get to the gate. And sure enough, GPT-4 arrives. Now, my first inclination was Sam Altman tweeted, 
excited the number four today and a picture of himself with his backpack. It's like, oh, okay, it's, it, it's about to drop. And then sure enough, it did. Then Ahmed Mustak, who is the CEO of Stability AI, an open source kind of AI platform, uh, teased on Twitter that there's more to come. The release, the releases keep on coming, expect even more in the next few days slash week. So this is all by 2 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. <laughs> and so by the time I land, I first thought, oh my gosh, I have to rebuild my presentation for Wednesday morning. So I, I messaged Michael Stelzner and, and the team at, you know, social media marketing world. And I was like, Hey, just heads up. I have to do a V3 of my deck for tomorrow. Sorry. Like, <laughs> and so I did that. And then I woke up Wednesday morning and I spent the entire day trying to process what in the world was happening and that it was only Wednesday. And so when I got on stage Wednesday afternoon, I told that audience, we had about 800 people. It was packed. We had to close the doors 10 minutes early because they couldn't fit any more people in the room. Not because of me, just because of like the moment and the topic and like everyone's trying to figure this out. And so I got on stage and I said, listen, I'm not even sure what to say to you all right now. Like we are in the midst of the most consequential week in AI history, in my opinion. And I'm still trying to process this myself. So we're going to go through this together. And that was kind of how I started my talk at Social Media Marketing World. So yes, it was a insane week. We have said over and over again, like it's going to be hard to comprehend what comes next. And sometimes we'll get pushback with people like, oh, it's just hype. I'm like, no, it's not. Like you have no idea what's about to happen. And I think Tuesday was a really good illustration that we can't really prepare for the rate of change we are in the midst of, and it's not going to slow down. So with that stage setting, I'll throw it back to you, Mike, and let's actually dig into some of these topics. <laughs> so, you know, first and foremost, one of the great examples of what you're talking about is the release of GPT-4. So GPT-4 has been anticipated for a very long time being released by OpenAI. It is their latest, most powerful version of their large language model. And it's now being integrated into existing products via API. And it's also powering ChatGPT, the latest version of their popular conversational AI interface. According to OpenAI, they say, quote, GPT-4 can solve difficult problems with greater accuracy thanks to its broader general knowledge and problem-solving capabilities. So we actually see this firsthand because OpenAI says that GPT surpasses a couple, GPT-4 surpasses a couple benchmarks that the previous version of ChatGPT was also tested on. So you can actually see some dramatic exponential performance gains here. They tested GPT-4 on the uniform bar exam. It scored in the 90th percentile, which is crazy on its own, but the previous versions of ChatGPT scored in the 10th percentile. It also, I emailed a few of my lawyer friends <laughs> that one. I was like, hey, heads up. It has also performed similarly on, um, I believe it's the Olympiad uh, test in biology. Biology. So it's actually able to achieve dramatically better scores on what we would consider relatively advanced tests of knowledge and reasoning. Now, what's also crazy, this is not available yet, but it will also be able to accept images as inputs. So OpenAI demoed that this isn't just about language anymore. It's multimodal. So they actually provided GPT-4 with an image of a hand-drawn sketch of what a web page should look like. 
And GPT-4 was able to understand the image, understand the input and the directions, and actually provide code to build that page, all from literally on a drawing you would make on a notepad. So one other element here, before I get into your thoughts, Paul, is that around the same time, OpenAI took a bunch of criticism from the AI community because they're not releasing as many details of these models as they have historically. And they've actually, uh, Ilya Sutskever, who is uh, one of the co-founders and the chief scientist there, actually was quoted in The Verge talking about how OpenAI is essentially less open today because of competitive pressures and safety concerns. So we're going to dive into that, but that's drawing a lot of heat from the community um, because OpenAI in the past started out as more of a mission-focused open research organization and is acting much more like a major tech giant that it is becoming. So let's start at the beginning here, Paul. How big a deal is this release? I mean, it's huge. Uh, obviously, we're not going to underplay it. I think that there is some um, question about like how much of a leap forward it really is over three or three point five. But you know, in our early testing, and certainly a lot of the things I've seen online, it, it's it's significantly better. And we know that they have some guardrails in place, some pretty significant guardrails. So my initial testing. So again, if you want to go get it right now, if you have a Chat GPT free account, just pay twenty bucks for a month and have at it. Like you can test GPT-4 on your own for $20 right now. And I know that there's some third-party applications that have it baked into their solution, but the simplest, fastest way is just go to chat GPT and get a $20 account uh, month to month. So my initial take, again, I'm hanging out in San Diego playing around with this thing, is it's we know it's bigger. So again, they they went closed. They did not share all the details of how it's trained and how big of a model it is and how much compute power is needed and all of these things. They didn't share any of that. And they can say it's for safety purposes. Maybe I think it's very clear it's for competitive purposes primarily, that they just don't want other people knowing what they're doing. And I, uh, Ilya actually said, like, we made a mistake. Like, we shouldn't have ever shared what we were doing. And mm. now we're changing that basically when he got called out on it. Um, so it's bigger. We don't know how much bigger. The multimodal is a huge deal. The fact that it can take image inputs and probably video inputs in the near future, and it can actually learn from that and then create outputs based on that is a really big deal. Um, that's moving much toward much closer toward a general intelligence platform. Now they would consider this kind of a general intelligent agent, like it has general capabilities to do many things that it's tasked with. So it's bigger, it's multimodal. It is certainly smarter. Um, in large part due to advancements in reasoning capabilities. And there's an interview on ABC with Sam Altman and the CTO Mira. Just, um, I just watched it last night. I don't know when it actually came out. But they talked about the advancements in reasoning as the big thing. And what that does is it gives it the ability to actually create more logical outputs. It can analyze its own outputs. Um, it can understand the context of the question. It can look back at other things and understand what you're actually, actually asking. It gets really good at problem solving, which it wasn't maybe as advanced at before. Um, it can handle ambiguity, so it can really kind of understand what's going on, the question, the prompt. Um, if it's not clear, it can start to better understand and connect the dots between things. So reasoning is a really big deal. It's what a number of the research labs have been focused on for the last couple of years to really advance these models. They claim it's safer in part because of its reasoning ability. It's going to be less likely to respond to restricted content and less likely to make stuff up. 
And then the other thing that I noticed is it's far more creative. Like mm -hmm. if you give it the same prompt, it's night and day. And the example I put up on LinkedIn was an out of office reply. And I said like, hey, I'm out of office, um, be slower to reply um, because I'm going and doing some talks on AI basically. And I did a 3.5 output and a four output and it was, it was insane. So that to me was, you know, the first things that started jumping out to me is the, the impact that's going to have on creativity and getting much, much closer to being reliable in terms of the outputs and the accuracy. Let's talk about that a little more because really that jump in reasoning capabilities and, you know, the test benchmarks they shared really did seem to be eye-opening for a lot of people following this space. I mean, should we be expecting imp an impact on more cognitive abilities, you know, at work in certain types of jobs, especially in marketing and business-related functions? Yeah, I don't, I, again, I don't think people are ready for the impact this can have because, you know, the thing I've said, and I, I mentioned this when it comes to the Microsoft and Google, I don't think people give enough attention to uh, these, these tools as, as strategy assistants. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've used it a, a number of times to create strategies for things in my personal life, like let's say a nutrition plan or things in business, like, you know, build me a business plan for a startup, just to experiment and see. And it's really good. Um, when you start getting into having it do strategy. And so I think that it's going to continually kind of like make that impact. But what we've learned is they have a lot of protections in place to, to keep it from showing off its full capabilities, what we, you know, we call guardrails. Um, and Sam and Mir both talked about those guardrails because what they said in the ABC interview is that the, the GPT-4 has been done for seven months and they've basically been in testing and trying to figure out where these emergent abilities were going to be and the things it could do. Like the example they gave on ABC is like, could it give you instructions to make a bomb? And mm -hmm. Sam said, well, I hope it doesn't, but yes, it can. Um, but we've prevented it from doing that. So like that was a known thing. So they put guardrails in place. So if you ask it, how do I make a bomb? It's not going to tell you. But then Sam said, well, but you could learn it on Google. Like Google already does that. So you can tell that there is this like, Yes, this thing is going to be insanely dangerous, but we're going to kind of push forward anyway because there's already a bunch of danger in the world. It's, it's kind of like, it's not the greatest talking points, but it's the reality of what they're doing. So with that, should we be worried about open AIs, call it a lack of openness or transparency and kind of this shift into this closed system? that we don't fully understand. We know there are better guardrails. It's safer. That's great. But we have less transparency into how the models are actually working. And OpenAI, like you mentioned, is not sharing a lot. I mean, how big a danger is this to interpreting what these models are capable of? I don't have a strong point of view on open versus closed models. And I, I, I really want one, to be honest with you. So I saw the Stanford... A human-centered centered artificial intelligence organization, institute, whatever they call it, put out a poll of like, should these models be open or closed? And my, I replied, I think, and said like, I actually have no idea. Like, I follow this space as closely as anybody, and I don't know because the people on the everything should be open side are convinced they're right, and the people on the everything should be closed side are convinced they're right. 
Um, and people who previously, like OpenAI, thought it should all be open are now saying, you will all learn that we were right. It should actually be closed now. Like we've changed our point of view and you will as well. So they are very confident that having it open is very dangerous to humanity. I believe that. Like, so I think there is, there's two sides to this, obviously. So the, the people who want it open largely want it open because they don't want it controlled by a select few technology companies. So their belief is that even though it's dangerous, if it's out in the open and anyone in society can, can uh, experiment with it and build on it, then we have a better chance of protecting ourselves when we create something that has danger in it. Um, the closed people like OpenAI believe they are the shepherds of this and that they know better how to control it than society does and op you know, leaving it open to everybody else. I can completely understand the arguments on both sides. I have probably more fear about it being open. Um, I'm not saying I'm all for like close it off and let OpenAI, Google, and Microsoft figure this out for the rest of society. But I do have major fears about when this gets in the hands of people who shouldn't have it and what it can do. And I think we're going to find out really fast. Like there, there will be GPT-4 level language models open that'll be, have been copied or built by someone else to humanity by the end of this year, probably sooner. And so we will find out like the next election cycle in America is going to be, I might just turn like social media off for six months. Like I can't even imagine what we're about to enter into. And I think the openness is going to accelerate that. I think the closed gives us more time to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think closed is going to win. I, I think the there's enough people like the the poll I mentioned from Stanford that had 328 votes, and granted, it, that's not a huge sample size considering this. But it was 94 percent of respondents said that we should keep these models open. Wow! So that worries me. <laughs> I think open is going to win, um, and I don't know that that's in the best interest of humanity. Is kind of where I'm at at the moment. That's really fascinating. I think we're also kind of leads in really well to our next topic because we're very quickly, even if you're just getting up to speed on the chat GPTs of the world, GPT-4 and all of these issues, you are very quickly going to start using these types of technologies at work. And one of the other big set of announcements this week is that Google and Microsoft are actually embedding a ton of these generative AI capabilities into their core products. So if you use Google products in your business or Microsoft products, if you are not already, you will be using AI in the near future. So Google on their end announced that developers are now going to have access to its Palm language model, which through an API gives people the ability to build on top of it in Google Cloud. And the company also announced generative AI features coming to Google Workspace, which is the firm's productivity suite. So that means you're going to actually see much more robust generative AI features in Gmail and Docs, for instance, that draft copy on any given topic for you. So all of these generative capabilities we've been talking about through third-party tools are starting to become natively integrated to the core productivity software we use every day, which is definitely something we have talked about quite a bit as being on the horizon. And at the same time here, Microsoft announced Microsoft 365 Copilot. 
So this is an AI tool that they call a co-pilot for work. Uh, according to Microsoft, Copilot can actually use the power of large language models in combination with data in the Microsoft Graph and Microsoft 365 apps to increase productivity. So there's two kind of main ways they describe this as working. First, Copilot works alongside you in popular apps like PowerPoint, Word, and Outlook. So in Word, it will now be able to generate drafts for you. In PowerPoint, you can use natural language prompts to create presentations and much more. Copilot also enables a new feature they're calling business chat, and this is really fascinating as well. It surfaces insights from data across your company and your apps. So all these conversations you're having via Microsoft email services, things in docs, presentations, Excel spreadsheets, you can actually start querying business chat with natural language prompts like, Tell my team how we updated our product strategy. And it will generate a status update based on the morning's meetings, emails, and chat threads. So it's this really productivity accelerating digital AI assistant. So as you're seeing these announcements, Paul, how important are these for the future of how we work? Yeah, my first take was that it's going to rapidly transform the future of all knowledge, work, creativity, and productivity. And to give context, so the talk I did Friday in San Francisco was to a group of like 100, 150 executives, um, you know, from a financial services industry. And I showed, uh, I talked about, um, so Satya Nadella had this quote a couple of years ago about their mission is to basically build AI first companies in every industry. And then I showed the minute and a half clip of 365 Copilot. Then I had the quote from Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Alphabet and Google, about AI being the most important thing humanity has ever worked on. And then I showed the Google Workspace clip. Their jaws were on the floor. Like to them, what it did was like what, what Chad GPT did, GPT, GPT did for marketers and writers. I think this does for the C-suite hmm. because you look at Microsoft and you look at Google and say, okay, that's our core tech stack. Like, that's what we're built on. And then you show all these use cases and you can sit there and watch like, oh, wait, we're paying an administrative assistant to take notes in meetings and figure out action items and build them into the project management system. Or we have entire analyst teams built to do the analysis they just did of that spreadsheet. So now if you're a leader of an organization, you watch these one and a half minute teasers of the capabilities, you immediately have to start thinking like, oh my gosh, like. This isn't just like a series of tools. This changes everything about our staffing, our operations, our tech stack, and we have no one on our team who knows what to do about it. So I think that to me is the biggest thing is like by Microsoft and Google jumping in in this way. And I mean, those are really impressive trailers. Like if, if it does what they're showing there out of the box and it's actually capable of these things, it's going to have a massive effect immediately on every business of every size and they're not prepared for it at all. Yeah, that's wild. And I think when we talk about not being prepared, one of the elements here that you talked about on LinkedIn, you said about this announcement um, or about the Google announcement specifically, mm -hmm. so many choices for businesses. It's going to be tricky to navigate the evolving tech stack. Can you unpack that a little more for us? Like what kind of decisions are leaders and professionals going to have to start making around this technology? Well, if you just look at 
you and I, I mean, we follow this space very closely. We talk, we've interviewed hundreds of these AI tool companies. We use, you know, probably a dozen to two dozen ourselves every week. I sat back and said, man, I wonder how many of those we're going to need six months from now. Like we're Google, we, we largely use Google, um, workspace. And you just look at it and think, do I need writing tools? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. It, it, like how many writing tools is too many? So that was one of the questions I posed. I think one of the comments is like, how many writing tools is too many for a tech stack? Like what, are, how many Chrome extensions can I possibly have running at one time? So if I have an editing tool and a writing tool and then another writing tool, am I going to have like a writing tool for email and a writing tool for docs and a writing tool for proposals and a writing tool for sales? And a, or am I just be like, um, just consolidate it all. Like just if Google or office, Microsoft office are going to do this for me, like maybe it just brings it all in. So I think it presents some real challenges moving forward because again, the people making these decisions don't really understand the technology. Like they're not going to be able to say, well, if I have chat GPT for $20 a month, do I also need this AI writing tool for $90 a month? And then do I need this editing tool for $50 a month? And how does this scale? So if you're trying to make a decision as an individual creator, it's hard enough. If you're trying to do this for an enterprise, I, I mean, it's such a cliche old saying, but nobody got fired for buying IBM was like the thing in the eighties. Yeah. And I think when you look at generative AI in the 2020s, you may end up with something similar. It's like, well, let's just consolidate it with a big guy because at least we know we're not going to screw it up and that company will still be around in three years. Um, because I think there's a real possibility of massive consolidation. Like, I think we're going to have an explosion of generative AI tools, although our next topic <laughs> changed that slightly. Um, I think there's going to be an explosion of tools, but I think there may end up being a consolidation of tech stacks, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. So we're basically saying, I mean, as these bigger platforms with established business productivity software begin to make them smarter with generative AI, they're essentially duplicating the capabilities of a whole range of third-party startups that are receiving tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. So are we saying that's going to, that that competitive landscape has kind of fundamentally changed due to these types of announcements? It sure seems like it to me. I, I mean, they're a lot of the generative AI applications or SaaS companies created are, are actually features hmm. within Microsoft and Google, if you think about it. So, yeah, I mean, the note I had made was like, if you're a SaaS leader, you got to get really serious, really fast about what is actually defensible in your business model. Um, and, you know, like for an example, like I don't, um, you know, we talk about writing a lot, but let's say like, the slide creation, they both showed the ability to either in Google Slides or in PowerPoint to text prompt the creation of a deck. Well, Tome is like a really cool AI generated slide company that I think just raised like 40 or 50 million or something like yeah. that to generate presentations with text prompts. That's an example. It's like I, Tome looks awesome and maybe it is defensible. Maybe it's like a great business model and they have some mode around it that I don't know, but I also look at it and think, well, I, I don't know if I'd need that separate thing, but maybe I do. And so I think what I was basically saying in that post is like, your buyers, if, you're, if you are one of these application layer SaaS companies, 
know that your buyers are asking the same questions we're asking ourselves out loud right now. Mm. Do I really need that tool if I can do this in Microsoft or Google? Um, that is not us being critical of your solution and what you've built. It is a harsh reality that that is what your buyers and your existing customers are going to be asking themselves. I've consolidated some of my own because I didn't need all these tools. Hmm. So if I'm doing it, I'm sure that there's other people doing it. And most of these SaaS companies want to sell to teams. They, you know, individual buyers are great, self-serve model, but everybody eventually goes upstream if they didn't start there. And so if you want to go upstream and sell to like 500 person marketing teams, you better have a really good answer to the question of what makes it different than what Microsoft's about to come out with, because there's no way you're winning that sale if they think they can just roll it into Microsoft and Microsoft can undercut the market if they want mm. to, they can just build these tools in and you do as a loss leader, if they have to just get you into their cloud business. Like I, I wouldn't want to be competing with them. Um, so yeah, it's like, and I think that was the big takeaway was for SaaS and then investors, same deal we've said before, like you got to be super critical of your portfolio right now and all future generative AI investments, knowing that the big guys are now playing the game. And then the other thing we said was, it's not just a marketing sales service thing. This is ops and HR and finance and legal and IT. So if you're the CEO or you report to the CEO, you, you better be thinking cross-function across the entire organization because now that it's going to be embedded into Microsoft and Google, it touches everything. It's not just a marketing right. thing anymore. And as if there weren't enough hard questions to answer in this space, our third main topic really is something that we're beginning to consider just a total game changer for generative AI. And so very recently, the U.S. Copyright Office came out with some commentary on generative AI tools. And the conclusion is essentially something that's going to surprise a lot of people in the market. Um, if you're using generative AI tools today to create content, you know, articles, blog posts, books, images, whatever, according to the U.S. Copyright Office, it sure seems like you do not own that content. That means that anyone can reproduce that content that has been AI created without your permission and create derivative works from it, display it, perform it, and sell it. So this happened, you know, a few days ago, the Copyright Office is launching an initiative to examine copyright law and policy issues raised by AI, including how the scope of copyright actually works with these AI tools that can generate content. They, the Copyright Office said, quote, the initiative is in direct response to the recent striking advances in generative AI technologies and the rapidly growing use by individuals and businesses. And they go on to mention they've gotten many, many requests from Congress and members of the public to examine the issues around copyright. Um, so they actually issued updated registration guidance that has an immediate effect on your ability to protect your original work. So a few really quick takeaways here, and then Paul, I want you to kind of unpack this for us, is that they lean very heavily on talking about the fact it's well-established that copyright can only protect material that is the product of human creativity. So the, they use the term author, which is in both the Constitution and the Copyright Act, and say that that term excludes non-humans, i.e. AI cannot own, it cannot be uh, used to defend copyright if the artificial intelligence created the work itself. 
And they go on to talk about if a work's traditional elements of authorship were produced by a machine, it lacks human authorship. The office will not register it. So for example, when AI technology receives a prompt from a human solely and produces the kind of complex content we just talked about, they are saying that this is not going to be protected by copyright for you or your business. So I want to get into some of the nuances here, Paul, because the way we're interpreting this, your kind of takeaway here was you need to talk to your IP attorneys and start really seriously thinking about this topic because it seems like a really big deal. Is that, do we have that right? Yeah. So the way this sort of snowballed for us was um, Sunday morning. So it was yesterday when I'm recording this, I saw an, an AI ethicist I follow tweeted something about this. And so I kind of start like following the pattern. Where did their tweet come from? And I land on the March 16th announcement about this new AI initiative from the copyright office. And in like the second or third paragraph, it says, we've also updated our guidelines for submission of copyrights. So the significance of the copyright, if you're not, not familiar with like U.S. copyright law, is that you have ownership of something. So if you create a song or a poem or an article or a blog post or a video or an image or whatever it is, once you create it and it's in a fixed space, so you you release it somewhere, you, you've put it out into the world, you technically own it, but you want to submit those things to the copyright office for like legal protection. Mm -hmm. So if someone steals your stuff, you have to then prove that you had published it at this time. What you do is like, once you create something, like let's say we create our courses or I create a new presentation and I want legal protection from it. So nobody steals that idea from us, that knowledge, that intellectual property from us. I go to my IP attorney who we use all the time. And I say, here you go. Here's like 17 new courses. Do your thing. Well, we got back from them in the fall. Or I guess this was December. Well, would you have any AI generated image in this deck? The copyright office wants to know. And I was like, well, yeah, but it's like three images. Like you can't copyright the course because of three images. And it was like this gray area. So I've been aware that there was, this was an issue for months and I have thought about this. But by Sunday morning, I go to like, just put something quick on LinkedIn, like, hey, FYI, the copyright office is looking at this. But once I dug into the updated guidance, I realized, oh no, this is like a major deal because I don't know of a single AI writing tool company that has, that I have seen a point of view on this on, like any knowledge or information about it. Then I started thinking about all the recent major breakthroughs in generative AI that we just talked about and how people are using GPT-4 to write entire articles, which it is capable of, or they're generating images and they're, you know, using those and all their collateral and everything. And what it became very clear when you read that guidance is you have no ownership of it. So if I published, like I, there was a big, um, was it Reed Hoffman that just published a book using, yeah. go build a course on it. Like Reed has no ownership of that thing he just created. What they're basically saying is, if you submit a thousand word article or a 50,000 word book manuscript, so we have like the copyright on our book, basically anything that was generated by AI, you cannot claim a copyright on. Now you can get a copyright on the other stuff that was yours, the original work from you, but a text prompt doesn't count. So like if you give a text prompt and you give an output, you have no ownership of it. So I know people who are publishing blog posts using GPT-4, like they're, yeah. they're working on plans to release a whole bunch of content. Anybody can take it from and they can't do anything about it because it, what's going to happen is if you try and litigate, so if you try and stop someone from stealing it, 
the copyright office will come to you and say, okay, prove that a human did this. And they're going to want proof. They're going to want to know what prompts you used, what was the output of the prompts. And so now again, it's not going to, it's not like they can do this. They don't have the staffing to do this for every single instance of copyright infringement. But this is where they're going to have to go is they're going to have to figure out how do we scale the, the oversight that is going to be needed to prevent this from happening. So I, I don't, I mean, as Sunday went on, after I posted the original thing on LinkedIn, I started realizing, oh my God, wait, this may actually be a much bigger thing than I was originally thinking it was. And because you realized it's immediate. Like if you wanted to submit something right now that AI generated, or if you're putting a copyright, here's a real practical example. Everybody has like, go to the website, go to their blog at the bottom, copyright 2023, marketing, AI Institute, whatever. Mm -hmm. So you're claiming a copyright on everything you're publishing, even if you haven't submitted it to the copyright office yet. If AI generated that content, you don't actually have a copyright on it. So if you're a big healthcare company and you're using AI to like write content, another healthcare company could take your content. You can't do anything about it. Mm. So, I mean, the implications are actually huge. And so I started thinking by last night, like, wait a second, this could actually be a major, major hindrance on the use of generative AI, especially for enterprises, because there's, there's no way people that are big enough to have a legal team are going to allow this. And so I could see the pushback from the tech companies like, oh, whatever law just hasn't caught up. Well, oh, but it's still the law. Like you don't get to change the law because you built really cool technology. Hmm. So I, I could see a lot of these software companies just feeling like this is just the government not catching up. And I could sort of hear that argument, but it's the law and it's not going to catch up for a while. So you're going to have to live within the confines of this. And that just changes the way these tools are used, I think. And nobody's talking about this. <laughs> it's, it's wild to me that I can't, now that I'm thinking about it, like, how, how do you raise all the money these companies have raised without the VCs saying, are there any copyright like barriers to this? Like, is, is this actually going to get shut down because we can't actually generate and publish the stuff from these things? And so I think it's important to give even more context there for the audience. You know, people have been talking about, okay, what are some of the copyright issues around how some of the models themselves are trained? Vendors have talked about, okay, we are, we hear and very much respect concerns around say plagiarism. And there's plenty of messaging about how it's creating original content, but the copyright element is a whole different animal, especially perhaps for some of the companies that you mentioned that don't typically fall into what we might call the Silicon Valley move fast and break things perspective, yes. right? <laughs> Plenty of companies do that. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It just is. But there, we, you know, in our past lives, we were agency professionals working with hundreds of different types of companies, both big and small, very slow enterprises and bureaucratic organizations and very fast moving startups. There is at least a significant portion of our former clients where this, I could tell you, would immediately be the number one cause for concern. Shut it down. About, yeah. They yeah. Would, generative AI would be shutting down right now. Like, they, I agree with you 100%. Like, we work with a lot of Fortune 500 companies, highly regulated industries. If legal knew this, it's done. Like, they're just, there's a meeting happening in conference rooms right now. How are we using generative AI? Because yes, everything we've talked about today about the use of generative AI has been more on the ethical side and, you know, it's not plagiarism. Okay, you deal with that. We haven't 
publicly talked about this as a major issue. And I think it might be the issue. <laughs> like, um, because yeah, it's like, if you're going to like, it, it starts to impact your staffing, your content strategy. So just because you can create content and publish it with these tools, doesn't mean you should from an ethical standpoint and from a principle standpoint, but it might be that you're not actually allowed because yeah. you can't copyright the stuff. And that's where the legal teams are going to get involved. And we are not attorneys. Like I took a business law class and I've, I feel like I've got a master's degree in intellectual property the last 20 years as a business owner, but if we are not giving you legal advice. I'm saying talk to your legal teams before you go scale the use of content and video generation and image generation, all these things, make sure you have the hard conversation right now before you start making staffing decisions based on this and tech stack decisions. Like we're at the point where we can kind of like rewind a little bit and, and be logical about where we go from here. But three, six, 12 months from now, you're going to have made some decisions around scale that are going to be really hard to wind back. And so I think this needs to, like you said, it needs to become like a top of the list priority item to be thinking about. And like, give you an example, another place this rolls in, speaking of our agency, the past agency, um, mm -hmm. we, we worked under work for hire agreements. So if a client came to us in the contract, it was a work for hire agreement, which means we're relinquishing the copyright to what we create. You are paying us. We will create this ebook or this course or this webinar or this video script or whatever it is, we're creating it for you. You own the copyright. What this means is if you're hiring an agency or an outside freelancer to create something for you and they use AI to create it and don't tell you, you actually don't have the copyright you thought you had. You have no protection of the, the output. So the trickle down of this is massive. And as, again, if, if agencies were planning on scaling up using generative AI to get their services going, this Again, if I was, if I was still the CEO of an agency, I'd be like, oh crap, like I didn't even think about this. And I would be revisiting, what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? And I would, I would be on a call with my IP attorney right now. So obviously this is still hot off the presses. We are not giving out legal advice and we're still figuring out our guidance and our perspective on this, but do you have any thoughts around what impact this will have on writers and marketers in terms of the use cases that they're looking at for these tools. We're all vetting yeah. AI technology that can do everything from write to create audio to create video. How do we have to change how we're doing our work as an individual kind of in the trenches as a creator, marketer, or a writer? The assumption that a lot of people seem to make about AI writing tools is that they just write content, articles, blog posts, emails, like it, it writes. The reality is language models can be used for a, a lot of different purposes, like content summarization, where it's taking your original work, the human generated original work and creating a summary of it. Again, not an attorney, but that seems safe to me. The original authorship comes from the human and the machine is there to assist in the summarization. The same goes for transcription. Our podcast is a great example. We, you and I are having this conversation. All of these ideas are our intellectual property. They're covered under copyright under the Marketing AI Institute. When we transcribe it, it's just the machine transcribing the original authored words, us putting it out, fixes it in the world. So it's owned and fixed. Those are the two criteria of, of copyright. So transcription and summarization, those seem very safe to me. They seem like really logical use cases. I also look at things where the copyright doesn't really matter. So if I'm sending sales emails or like right. marketing emails, I don't like, 
I'm not submitting those to my IP attorney to copyright every sales email that goes out. So I could see that probably being safe. So I think what needs to happen, and this is where my, like when I'm thinking about our AI for Writers Summit next week, like where I'm kind of going with my keynote now, which I now have 10 days to create. Um, I'm trying to think through like what guidance we can offer people of what appears to be safe. Again, still consult with your legal team, but like these seem to be the safe use cases. And again, if I was an AI writing tool SaaS company, I would do the exact same thing because you may be guiding your customers to use your tools in a way that they're not legally going to be allowed to use them. So I may steer into the other use cases where it is truly ideation and outlining and like these things that seem real safe. And I think they're walking a fine line because everyone I see is like, well, the human's got to be in the loop. It's just a writing assistant tool. And yet they're teaching them, go ahead and write the 600 word blog post and then just edit it. Right. It's not clear to me that that's going to get a copyright. Like it doesn't seem, I think they need to talk to their legal teams as well to get better guidance for their customers. Uh, and they need to do it fast because the market is going to be very confused very quickly. Yeah, just another good example of why I think we're seeing so much interest in the AI for Writers Summit um, because these kind of conversations can't wait for months or years to be had and everyone is figuring it out at the same time or needs yeah. to be. So are you, uh, you know, ready for some rapid fire now? I mean, I feel yeah, like we've covered, I feel like we just covered like, a year's worth of content here. <laughs> yeah, I think we just like made people's week not so great. Yeah, right. right. Riding the wave of all this excitement and it's like crashing down. So sorry if we're like the the bummer <laughs> in the party here, but I think it's important people are thinking about this. But yes, let's end with some uh, some other insane insanity in AI right now. <laughs> well, first up, uh, Microsoft had a different AI-focused announcement. Uh, they laid off a key responsible AI team. So Microsoft laid off its entire ethics and society team within the artificial intelligence organization as part of recent layoffs that affected 10,000 employees across the company. What, uh, how did this make you feel about some of the compromises being made on AI ethics versus market conditions? All I'll say is the arguments for the closed models are coming from OpenAI and Microsoft and Google, the same people who are laying off their ethics teams for being roadblocks to releasing what they're releasing. We have, we have a problem as a society. The, the people that we are trusting to shepherd the closed models into our world are getting rid of the ethical teams that are supposed to make sure they're done safely. That's all I'll say on that. Interesting times. <laughs> Another big topic is that Anthropic, which is a major player in AI models, released Claude, which is a next generation AI assistant based on their research. Now, here's where you see the flip side in some ways of what, what you just mentioned. Anthropic, at least in their messaging, specifically calls out that they're training helpful, honest, and harmless AI systems. So Claude is capable of a wide variety of conversational and text processing tasks, and you can do things with it like summarize, um, write, code, answer Q&As, and much more. And they say early customers report that Claude is much less likely to produce harmful outputs. 
and it's easier to converse with and it's more steerable. So you get your desired output with less effort. So what was your impression of the importance of Anthropic's announcement? Uh, so a couple quick notes here. One, you know, when we talked about a couple episodes ago, how even the organizations that want to control this, what if their employees leave and don't? Hmm. Um, and so there's been a lot of talk about people leaving to go to OpenAI to work. Well, Anthropic was created by former OpenAI employees. Now they went and went the safer route, it would appear, um, but they've raised $1.3 billion. Like the reason this is a big deal is because these companies are raising a ton of money. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's just for people who didn't know that name before, there's some, there's some companies in this space we need to pay attention to. It's not all Microsoft and Google and OpenAI, it's Anthropic and Cohere and Stability AI. Like these are the organizations that are that are pushing forward uh, with these language models and going to affect the ways we use them and and maybe the alternative options we may have in the coming months and years. Yeah, and another great example of that is a company called Adept, which again probably many people have not heard of or followed. Just raised a three hundred fifty million dollar funding round. And they're building a future in which you can tell your computer to do something in your own words and just watch it happen on your screen. We got into this topic of a couple episodes ago talking about your idea of the world of bits and what can happen when we're actually able to manipulate what we're doing on physical hardware or in the physical world with machine prompts like this. So this is a huge fundraising announcement. It's part of their Series B led by General Catalyst and Spark Capital. Um, and so they're really trying to build a future where you spend less time on manual multi-step processes. We talked about this also in the context of HubSpot's ChatSpot um, tool, making it easier to do things with less clicks in a platform we use every day. So this really seems like validation for your hypothesis that we're at least exploring this direction for AI assistance in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, the concept here is these action transformers. So the same transformers are the architecture that GPT is built on, generative pre-trained transformer. No, no, what the GPT stands for. So this is the idea of being able to create transformers that enable action. So it's you're going to hear a lot more about this space. Um, yeah, I think there there's a race right now to do this in a very big way. And my guess is we're going to start to see some stuff before the end of 2023, where you're going to be able to, you know, it may start being a tool you can actually go test out yourself. Wow. Yeah, definitely exciting. And, you know, just in case we didn't have enough big announcements and news, two other huge ones. First up, Gen 2 by Runway is coming very soon to Runway ML. Runway is another major player in the space. Again, probably doesn't get as much love as like the open AIs of the world. And this tool literally helps you realistically and consistency, consistently synthesize new videos. So we're talking text to video generation, video to video generation. Uh, literally giving you the power of professional quality video creation without filming anything and simply by writing a text prompt into a chat box. Insane tech. It's kind of what we guessed. Like this is what we said last week. I assumed it was going to be text to video. It is. Uh, the caveat obviously now is do you own what you create? Yes. I think that's going to be the question on everyone's mind. Like this is amazing. Do I own it? 
Like if I, if I start creating movies or shorts or trailers for my company or whatever it is, am I going to actually own the end product? Um, I'm not even sure that they can answer that question. The answer is no. <laughs> it would appear the answer is no. Um, but I don't want to diminish how insane this tech is and how awesome uh, it appears what they're doing. And I, as anyone's listened to this show before knows we're big fans of Runway. It's definitely one of the most innovative companies that we're tracking right now. So yes, awesome tech. Do you own it? Qu question marks in the future. <laughs> which, yeah, if you think about it, I mean, if you're an individual creator, obviously that could matter in some context, but individuals may be listening saying, oh, who cares? I want to go create like a professional grade feature film. Okay, yeah, but can you eventually, as we predict will happen someday, win the Oscar for it? Is a studio going to help fund you? Probably not with those kinds of restrictions. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> A lot of um, money poured into Washington to try and affect the future of copyright. I'm I'm predicting yes. very very soon. All right, and finally, as we wrap up this mega episode here, we saw on Wednesday Mid Journey announced version five of its AI image synthesis tool. So this is AI image generation. Just seeing the examples of what people are creating with this new model. Uh, this new version is stunning. I mean, we're seeing hyper-realistic AI art and images that some people are calling creepy and or too perfect because it's so good. Um, it's available now as an alpha test for customers who subscribe to MidJourney service. Again, to your point, amazing tech, it sounds like, but also interesting both copyright issues, but maybe some societal impacts as well as we get to truly realistic AI image generation. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the, we don't, I haven't used MidJourney myself, but just following along and looking at the outputs and the difference between version one through version five, like the human eye was the one I saw, like the iris and the human eye. It was like, yeah, cow. Uh, having just come from the social media marketing world conference, the one thought I have is what is going to even be real on TikTok and Instagram and whatever in the future. Like you're going to be able to create anything and have it look real and i don't know that i'm ready for that like that's <laughs> so i've said before like part of the reason i'm doing what we're doing is just to like try and figure out where this all goes and what does society look like and what does the workforce look like and what are my kids gonna do and there's some times where i just want to like shut my brain off it's like i just can't even think about it right now like i yep. and this is one of those weeks like this is a lot so if you stuck with us to the end um Go get a drink. Like, I, I think we all need to just kind of sit back and process how insane this really is. Um, you know, we've said numerous times, this is like wild times, crazy times. And that I just, it just keeps getting crazier. So, um, we're all in this together. We'll figure it out. <laughs> well, that's what, at least the bright side of it is that we have you sharing your insight and your experience with the audience so that we can figure it out, hopefully in a better and faster and more sustainable way than yeah some people are able to do out there. So thank you as always, Paul, for the yeah, and time if, and insight. If anybody has domain expertise and some of the stuff we talk about, like be sure to reach out to Mike and I, like we love to hear from people yeah. and you never know we're going to need some like expert insights to help tell this story because it's going in some wild directions. So um, yeah, thanks as always. We will be back next week with another episode and hopefully it's not as crazy of a week in AI <laughs> as last week was, but you just never know anymore. So thanks again for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. 
Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.